as long as we've had civilization, and indeed written records, humans have looked at the stars. They have looked at the stars for answers, for navigation, and for understanding themselves, ourselves. Often considered a pseudoscience rather than a science, astrologers work on the premise that events out there have an impact on events on Earth, down here. I'm quite sure if this is true, so is the reverse, meaning that events from this Earth have an impact out there. Many cultures have attached importance to astronomical events, and the Indians, Chinese and Maya developed elaborate systems for predicting terrestrial events from celestial observations. Astrology for many of us often consists of systems of horoscopes, supposedly explaining aspects of a person's personality and predict future events in their life based on positions of the sun, moon and other celestial objects at the time of their birth. The majority of professional astrologers rely on such systems. In short, astrology is all about studying the sky and finding meaning. Keep in mind that there is no such thing as out there. There is no outer space. We are space. We are in space and we are we, that is you and I. We are space dust. We make a bold assumption that we are clever space dust, but we are space dust. The objective of this podcast is to understand how the species, this species, our species, pushed itself off this planet into the stars. The first rockets were used as propulsion systems for arrows and may have appeared as early as 10th century in the Song Dynasty of China. Usage of rockets as weapons before modern rocketry is attested to China, Korea, India and Europe. One of the first recorded rocket launchers is called the Wasp Nest Fire Arrow Launcher, produced by the Ming Dynasty in the year 1380. Mysorean rockets were an Indian military weapon, the first iron-cased rocket successfully deployed for military use. The Mysorean army under Hyder Ali and his son Tipu Sultan used the rockets effectively against the British East India Company during the 1780s and 1790s. Their conflicts with the company exposed the British to this technology, which was then used to advance European rocketry. In 1903, a high school mathematics teacher named Konstantin Trysvolsky, inspired by Jules Verne and Russian cosmism, published The Exploration of Cosmic Space by Means of Retraction Devices. This was the first serious scientific work on space travel. In 1912, Robert Peltre published a lecture on rocket theory and interplanetary travel. He independently derived Trafalsky's rocket equation, did basic calculations about the energy required to make round trips to the moon and planets, and he proposed the use of atomic power, i.e. radium, to power a jet drive. In 1912, American Robert Goddard inspired from an early age by H.G. Wells and his personal interest in science, began a serious analysis of rockets, concluding that conventional solid-fuel rockets needed to be improved in three ways. First, 
Fuel should be burned in a small combustion chamber instead of building an entire propellant container to withstand the high pressures. Second, rockets should be arranged in stages. And finally, the exhaust speed and thus efficiency could be greatly increased to beyond the speed of sound by using something called a D-Laval nozzle. In 1923, German Hermann Obreth published a book, The Rocket into Planetary Space, a version of his doctoral thesis after the University of Munich had rejected it. In 1929, he published a book, Ways to Spacecraft, and static-fired an uncooled liquid-fueled rocket engine for a brief time. On the 16th of March, 1926, Robert Goddard launched the world's first liquid-fueled rocket in the US. During the 1920s, a number of rocket research organizations appeared worldwide. By 1927, the German car maker Opel began to research rocket vehicles together with Max Veller and the solid-fuel rocket builder Frederick Wilhelm Sander. In 1928, Fitz Opel drove a rocket car, the Opel RAK-1, on the Opel Raceway. Starting in early 1930s, during the last stages of the Weimar Republic, German aerospace engineers experimented with liquid-fueled rockets with the goal that one day they would be capable of reaching high altitudes and traversing long distances. The head of the German Army's Ballistics and Munitions Branch, Lieutenant Colonel Karl Emil Becker, gathered a small team of engineers that included Walter Dornberger and Leo Zensen to figure out how to use rockets as long-range artillery in order to get around the Treaty of Versailles, signed in 1919. That, re- that treaty banned research and development of long, long-range cannons. Rocketry in the USSR began with amateur societies. Foremost was a group called the Study of Reactive Propulsion, or GRID, headed by Frederick Zander and Sergei Korolev. From 1931 to 1937, in the Soviet Union, extensive scientific work on rocket engine design occurred at the Gas Dynamics Laboratory in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. During World War II, well, at the start of the war, the British has equipped their warships with unretracted projectile unguided anti-aircraft rockets, and by 1940, the Germans had developed a surface-to-surface multiple rocket launcher. Von Braun was the technical director of the ballistic missile program for the Germans during World War II. They They led the team that built the A-4 rocket, which became the first vehicle to reach outer space during its test flight program in 1942 and 1943. By 1943, Germany began mass production of the A-4 rocket. At the end of World War II, competing Russian, British and US military and scientific crews raced to capture technology and trained personnel from the German rocket program. Russia and Britain had some success, but the US benefited the most. The Americans captured a large number of German rocket scientists, including von Braun, and brought them to the US as part of Operation Paperclip, a secret program used to use Nazi scientists for American military technology. Independently of all this, in the Soviet Union's space program, research continued under the leadership of Chief Engineer Sergei Korolev. Korolev was a Ukrainian Soviet rocket engineer. He built the R-7 rocket, 
also known as an intercontinental ballistic missile. In fact, he designed and helped build the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile. Interestingly, the R-7 made 28 launches between 1957 and 1961, but it was never operational. For the purposes of this story, though, this amazing invention, though not operational for deploying nuclear weapons, was actually used for one of the most momentous events in human history. In a modified form, it helped launch the first object from this planet into space. It was launched into low Earth orbit by the USSR on the 4th of October 1957 as part of the Soviet space program. It orbited for three weeks before its batteries died and then orbited silently for two months before it fell back into the atmosphere on the 4th of January 1958. The rocket, that R7, was the most powerful in the world. It was designed with excessive thrust since they were unsure how heavy the hydrogen bomb payload technically would be. The first launch of an R7 rocket occurred on the 15th of May 1957. A fire began in the Block D strap-on almost immediately at liftoff, but the booster continued flying until 98 seconds after launch when the strap-on broke away and the vehicle crashed some 400 kilometers down, downrange. Three attempts to launch the second rocket were made on the 10th of the 11th of June, but an assembly defect prevented launch. The unsuccessful launch of the third R7 rocket took place on the 12th of July. An electrical shot caused the veneer engines to put the missiles into an uncontrolled roll, which resulted in all of the strap-ons separating 33 seconds into the launch. The R7 crashed about 7 kilometers from the pad. The launch of the fourth rocket on the 21st of August at about 15.25 hours Moscow time was successful. The rocket's core boosted the dummy warhead into the target altitude and velocity, re-entered the atmosphere and broke apart at high at a height of 10 kilometers after traveling 6,000 kilometers. On the 27th of August, the TASS news agency issued a statement on the successful launch of a long-distance multi-stage ICBM, Interconnected Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. The launch of the fifth R-7 rocket on the 7th of September was also successful, but the dummy was also destroyed at atmospheric re-entry and hence needed a redesign to completely fulfill its military purpose. The rocket, however, was deemed suitable for satellite launches, and Korolev was able to convince the State Commission to allow the use of the next R-7 to launch a satellite following the delay in the rocket's military exploitation to launch PS-1 and PS-2 satellites. On the 22nd of September, a modified R-7 rocket called Sputnik was prepared for launch. Compared to military R-7 test vehicles, this was a reduced tonnage from 280 to 272 tons. Its length was also shorter, and the thrust at liftoff was about 3.9 newtons. This was not designed to be controlled. It could only be observed. Initial data at the launch site would be collected at six separate observatories and telegraphed. The Sputnik rocket was launched on the 4th of October, 1957. As it launched, a fuel regulator in the booster failed around 16 seconds into the launch, which resulted in excessive RP-1 consumption for most of the powered flight and the engine thrust being 4% above nominal. The designers, engineers and technicians who developed the rocket and satellite watched, at the launch from, watched the launch from the range. 
After the launch, they drove to the mobile radio station to listen for signals from the satellite. They waited about 90 minutes to ensure that the satellite had made one full orbit and was transmitting before Korolev called Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev to tell him what happened. I'm now about to play you the signal that Sputnik sent back to Earth. On the first orbit, the Telegraph Agency of the Soviet Union, also known as TASS, transmitted this. As result of great intense work of scientific institutes and design bureaus, the first artificial Earth satellite has been built. The core stage of the R-7 remained in orbit for two months until the 2nd of December 1957, while Sputnik 1 orbited for three months until the 4th of January 1958, having completed 1,440 orbits of the Earth. The Vostok program was a Soviet human spaceflight project to put the first Soviet citizen into low Earth orbit and return them safely. The Vostok 1 was the first spaceflight of the Vostok program and the first human spaceflight in history. The Vostok 3KA space capsule was launched from Bakunir's Cosmodrome on April the 12th, 1961. Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human to cross into outer space. The Vostok 1 capsule was designed to carry a single cosmonaut. Gagarin, then aged 27, was chosen as the prime pilot of the Vostok 1. Gagarin was examined by a team of doctors prior to his flight. One doctor gave her a recollection of events in an interview much later. She said, and I quote, Gagarin looked more pale than usual. He was unsociable and quiet, which was not like him at all. He would answer by nodding or a short yes to all questions. Sometimes he would start humming some tunes. This was a different Gagarin. We geared him up and hugged, and I said, Yuri, everything will be fine, and he nodded back, end quote. Unlike later, unlike later Vostok missions, there were no dedicated tracking ships available to receive signals from the spacecraft. Instead, they relied again on a network of ground stations, also called command points, to communicate with the spacecraft. All of these command points were located within the Soviet Union. Because of weight constraints, there was no backup retro-rocket engine. The spacecraft carried about 13 days of provisions to allow for survival and natural orbital decay in the event of retro rocket's failure. The letters CCCP, representing the Soviet Union, were hand-painted onto Gagarin's helmet by engineer German Ledbedev during the transfer to the launch site on the day of the launch. The entire mission would be controlled by either automatic systems or by ground control. This was because medical staff and spacecraft engineers were unsure how a human might react to weightlessness, and therefore it was decided to lock the pilot's manual controls. In an unusual move, a code to unlock the controls was placed in an onboard envelope for Gagarin's use in case of emergency. 
Prior to the flight, they told Gagarin the codes anyway, which was 125. Back at the Buccaneer Cosmodrome on the morning of April 11th, 1961, the Vostok K rocket, together with the attached Vostok 3KA space capsule, were transported several kilometers to the launch pad in a horizontal position. Once they arrived at the launch pad, a quick examination of the booster was conducted by technicians to make sure everything was in order. When no visible problems were found, the booster was erected on an LC-1. It was suggested that Gagarin and his replacement in case he could not fly, Titov, slept that night. They were offered sleeping pills, but in the end, Gagarin's biographer said they did not sleep and they took no sleeping pills. Just prior to the flight, Gagarin released a statement, and I quote, Dear friends, both known and unknown to me, fellow countrymen, men and women of all lands and continents. In a few minutes, a mighty spaceship will take me to the faraway expanses of the universe. What can I say to you in these last minutes before the start? I see my whole past life as one wonderful moment. Everything I have experienced and done till now has been in preparation for this moment. I would like to dedicate this first spaceflight to the people of communism, a society which our Soviet people are already entering and which I am confident all men on Earth will enter. It's a matter of minutes now before the start. I say to you goodbye, dear friends, just as people say to each other when setting out on a long journey. I would like very much to embrace you all, people known and unknown to me, close friends and strangers alike. See you soon. End quote. At 5.30am Moscow time, on the morning of April the 12th, 1961, both Gagarin and his backup Titov were woken. They were given breakfast, assisted into their spacesuits, and then transported to the launch pad. Gagarin entered Vostok 1, and at 7.10 local time in the morning, the radio communication system was turned on. Once Gagarin was in the spacecraft, his picture appeared on TV screens in the launch control room from an onboard camera. Launch would not occur for another two hours, and during that time, Gagarin chatted with the mission control's main Capcom team. Following a series of tests and checks about 40 minutes after Gagarin entered the spacecraft, its hatch was closed. Gagarin, however, reported that the hatch was not sealed properly, and technicians spent nearly an hour then removing all the screws and sealing the hatch again. During this time, Gagarin requested some music to be played over the radio. Korolev was reportedly suffering from chest pains and worried, as up to this point the Soviet space launch rate was at 50%, i.e. 12 out of the past 24 launches had failed. Gagarin, on the other hand, was described as calm. About half an hour before his launch, his pulse was recorded at 64 beats per minute. At 6.07 in the morning, launch occurred from the Bacchanir Cosmodrome site number 1. Korolev radioed, Preliminary stage intermediate, main, liftoff. We wish you a good flight. Everything is all right. Gagarin replied, let's roll. 
At 6.09, the four strap-on boosters of the Vostok rocket used up to the lo- used up the last of their propellant and dropped away from the core vehicle. At 6.10, the payload shroud covering Vostok 1 was released, uncovering a window at Gagarin's feet with an optical orientation device. At 6.12, the rocket core stage used up its propellant and fell away from the capsule and final rocket stage. The final rocket stage ignited. At 6.13, Gagarin reported, The flight is continuing well. I can see the Earth. The visibility is good. I almost see everything. There is a certain amount of space under the clumeless cloud cover. I continue the flight. Everything is good. At 6.14, Vostok 1 passed over central Russia. Gagarin reported, Everything is working very well. All systems are working. Let's keep going. At 6.15, Three minutes into the burn of the final rocket stage, Gagarin radioed, Zyra 1, Zyra 1, I can't hear you very well. I feel fine. I'm in good spirits. I'm continuing the flight. Vostok 1 started to move out of radio range of the ground station. At 6.17, the rocket final stage shut down and Vostok 1 reached orbit. Ten seconds later, the rocket separated from the capsule. At 6.18, Gagarin reported, The craft is operating normally. I can see Earth in the viewport. Everything is proceeding as planned. Vostok 1 passed over the Soviet Union and then moved on over Siberia. After Siberia, it moved over the Pacific, down to the South Pole, and then back up over Africa, the Middle East, and back into the USSR. At 7.25, the spacecraft's automatic systems brought it into the required attitude for the retro-rocket firing, and shortly afterwards, the liquid-fueled engine fired for about 42 seconds over the west coast of Africa near Angola, about 8,000 kilometers uprange of the landing point. About 10 seconds after the retrofire, commands were sent to separate the Vostok service module from the re-entry module, but the equipment module unexpectedly, unexpectedly remained attached to the re-entry module by a bundle of wires. At around 7.35, the two parts of the spacecraft began re-entry and went through strong gyrations as Vostok 1 neared Egypt. At this point, the wires broke, the two modules separated, and the descent module settled into the proper re-entry attitude. Gagarin telegraphed, everything is okay. As Gagarin continued his descent, he remained conscious as he experienced about 8G during re-entry. At 7.55, when Vostok 1 was still about 7 kilometers from the ground, the hatch of the spacecraft was released and two seconds later, Gagarin was ejected. At about 2.5 kilometers in altitude, the main parachute was deployed from the Vostok spacecraft. Two schoolgirls witnessed the Vostok landing and described the scene. It was a huge ball, about 2 or 3 meters high. It fell, then it bounced and it fell again. There was a huge hole where it hit the first time. Gagarin's parachute opened almost immediately, and about 10 minutes later, at 8.05, Gagarin landed. Both he and the spacecraft landed via parachute, 26 kilometers southwest of Engels in the Staterov region. And the best bit is this. A farmer and her granddaughter observed the strange scene of a figure in a bright orange suit with a large white helmet landing near them by parachute. Gagarin later recalled, when they saw me in my spacesuit, 
and the parachute dragging alongside as I walked. They started to walk back away in fear. I told them, don't be afraid. I am a Soviet citizen like you, who has descended from space and I must find a telephone to call Moscow. This event in 1961 was probably the most important development in human evolution since the first civilizations of the ancient Sumerians, Egyptians and Harappans, etc. happened. As I said at the start of the podcast, things that happen out there have an impact on this earth. Think about the moon has an impact on tides. The sun has an impact on heat. The universe generally has an impact on the planet. And events on the planet have a likewise impact out there. And ultimately, out there is here. Here is there. This is space. We are space dust. When Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin went into space, it sent a message. It sent a message to anyone out there. The only ones who should be concerned that our species has left the planet or had left the planet on that fateful day should be any intelligent life form somewhere out there. Ours is not a species to be trifled with. Ask the whales, the dolphins, the chickens, the cows, the birds, etc. You have been listening to an alternative history podcast. Please like, subscribe, follow and comment on your podcast listening platform of choice. Thank you so very much.